Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love Ireland and baseball, you're one of us. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker, and we have a very full show for you today. My colleague Jim Ward is going to discuss an audio clip from Tim Carr, who's working on an exciting genealogical project with the Irish American Baseball Society. For more information on that project, visit irishbaseball.org. Later in the episode, John Fitzgerald, founder of the Baseball United Foundation and Irish American Baseball Society, will bring us some Irish American baseball history. First, I will be talking with Brian Cleary. After years as the head baseball coach at the University of Cincinnati, Cleary is now serving as a scout for the Washington Nationals organization. Thank you for joining us today, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. There's a big debate, or I think a lot of fans create this battle between the analytics and the scouts. Mm -hmm. But I think if we probably saw what was happening on the inside, we would see that there's a lot more cohesion between the two than they talk about in the media. How do the analytics play into scouting, but also how do you just have to use the eye test? Because we can all just look up the numbers. Your job is to see if the numbers are showing what it appears they're showing or how does that work? Well, I think you're exactly right. Do, do the numbers, you know, when you've got a scout's opinion on a player, uh, from his from his visual evaluation, and then the metrics, the numbers, the analytics, whatever you value there, when those match what the what the scout says, <clears throat> you know, I think it helps the you know leadership make good decisions on who they want to draft. I've only worked for the Nationals because I can only speak for us. I think we've got a really uh, great setup in that regard. We've got an analytics staff and all the bells and whistles, and and we're all familiar with what all those numbers mean. But, um, you know, we're tasked with going out and seeing players and offering our opinions on them. And then above us, kind of, I think the analytics and the, and the player evaluations get, you know, get folded in together and they're both pieces of the puzzle. And when they put those puzzle pieces together, our leadership can then say, hey, you know what, the analytics guys say this works and the scouts say this works. Okay, we're on to something. You know, it does take both. And there's, I think you have to have an appreciation for both because um, there, there is some real value that those numbers bring. Sometimes they're misleading, but um, there's a real value in the perspective that the scouts bring. And sometimes that's misleading. You know, it's a really evaluating baseball players is a really difficult job because I think there are so many, there's so many things that go into it uh, in addition to the obvious physical tools to measure somebody's ability to navigate the process from being drafted to, making it through the minor leagues to get into the big leagues. There's a whole lot that has to do with that, that you can't measure. The players that I coached that made it to the big leagues are the ones that kind of taught me. It's about way more than, than the physical part of the game, although that's critically important. It's about, you know, handling failure and, and having a chip on your shoulder and wanting to get to the big leagues and wanting to win and being competitive. And those things are just really hard to measure. When you're looking at a player for either level, do you try to see – a track record of growth? Do you try to see a player who has improved steadily or are you trying to see more consistency, if you will? Like if a player shows a lot early, 
And then as it's getting closer to recruiting them for college or thinking about drafting them, are you looking at a player who has shown that the extra at-bats, the extra experience will help them grow even more? Or are you just looking for those tools that you know you can develop once you get them into your system? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, certainly baseball is a what have you done for me lately uh, game, you know, so, you know, you can have a lot of uh, positive performance and uh, evaluation on a player. And, you know, as the draft gets closer, if that guy were to falter for whatever reason, that's hard to erase from your mind. Um, the opposite's true too. You know, there are a lot of players that blossom, you know, that last year before their draft and you go, okay, Hey, he's finally, kind of getting it. I think one of the advantage, advantages we have with the college game right now is the competition is good and it's a decent sample size. When you look at a play and the, you know, the, the, the numbers are reliable. You know, when you look at a player in the SEC or the ACC or the big 10 or, you know, one of the big division one conferences and you see his record of performance, I think that's a pretty good indicator of, you know, what type of, of player that guy is. And is it, is he getting a little bit better each year or, you know, is he, is he plateaued? You can kind of tell that I think a little bit, but the, the real trick is, you know, which of these guys is going to be able to, um, you know, make the jump to the, you know, keep jumping to the next level and the next level and next level. And certainly performance is, I think one piece of that puzzle, they're certainly an indicator. Uh, but there are some times where you look at a player and you go, man, this guy's a really good college player, but he just doesn't look like somebody that's going to play in the big leagues vice versa happens too. The beauty of our game, I think, is that we run these guys out there in the minor leagues and they get to play their way to the top. So at some point, if you're a good enough player, it doesn't matter. You know, you prove it yourself. I mean, we can all look and go, yeah, I don't think that guy's going to get to the big leagues. And sure enough, there are guys that do. That's the beauty of the game. Minor league baseball, and that's, a, you know, obviously a, a topic, a, a current topic right now, but minor league baseball is a great, has been a great system for giving plenty of guys opportunity to prove themselves and, and, and play their way to the top. So you just mentioned that being a topic of conversation right now, because they're certainly talking about cutting down on the number of minor league teams in organizations. How do you think that would affect the scouting process? Do you think more players would end up going to college in that situation? Do you think that it would make you have to second guess some of the players that you give a long shot chance? If ultimately the minor league system results in uh, fewer opportunities for guys to play, if there are fewer roster spots, then obviously, uh, you know, there are going to be some players who uh, like in years past, unlike in years past, who got a chance to play uh, as maybe a 40th round draft pick. Uh, if we don't have a 40th round and there are fewer roster spots, there are going to be probably fewer of those guys who uh, get an opportunity. I'm not expert in exactly what's going on and, and how exactly this is going to uh, impact us, but it stands to reason that fewer teams are going to equal fewer opportunities. And we're, and we're, you know, we're dealing with fewer rounds in the draft. Um, so I don't think it's going to impact the high school players as much because the guys, if you look, the high school players typically that are foregoing college and going into pro baseball, they're the ones that are the high draft picks with the big bonuses for the most part. Those are still going to be high draft picks with big bonuses. So I think those guys are still going to go into pro baseball out of high school. Um, it's, I think it's probably more likely to impact 
uh, the college senior that maybe might not get the chance that he would have gotten under the previous, uh, you know, system. When you are sort of pitching your players, you know, this is something that I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are really into the nuts and bolts of what happens. And you see a player and maybe you think, you know, not a quick move up to the majors. Like he's going to be a process, you know, he he's younger, needs to go through the system, but he's got that huge upside. Would you rather have somebody where you're trying to pitch it to player development? Like we have to take the chance on this guy. He's got a huge upside. Or would you rather have that, that person who maybe has a lower ceiling, but can get to the big leagues quickly? Everybody would like to be able to draft a sure thing, somebody that you know is going to get to the big leagues. Uh, but some of the players that wind up being stars in the big, that, that guy that you're talking about with the, uh, with the big upside, um, I, I think probably you've got to take a gamble on some of those guys uh, occasionally to find, you know, those are the guys, some of those guys are guys that wind up being superstars. And um, it's one of the things I'm trying to learn and I'm, I'm getting better at is, uh, you know, all these players have, something not to like about them you know there's there's always something that can cause you concern uh i'm trying to you know i try and remind myself that none of these guys are perfect you know you're, you're trying to look at who you think has the best chance to get to the big leagues and you know in the area that i cover and i i cover four states you know there's not often i mean it's not um there, there are there are a lot of good players in the area that I cover every year, but it's not an unlimited number of surefire guys where you sit there and go, and there's hundreds of guys here that there's there's a handful, five, ten guys every year where you go like, wow, that guy, you just feel really certain he's going to be a, a big leaguer. But there are other guys where you're trying to, some of them are going to be big leaguers. You just don't always know which ones. And um, I'm trying to get better at explaining. I think I'm guilty sometimes of just, watching a guy play and sometimes I can't even articulate why I do or I don't like him. You just, it's something in your gut that tells you this guy's going to be a really good player or he's not. And um, I'm not always right on that, obviously, but uh, I'm trying to get better at looking for all the positives in the players because you, it's easy to find stuff that's wrong and then trying to really articulate why do I think this guy's going to get in the big leagues. And I, some of the guys that have been doing this job for much longer than I have, they've got such a wealth of knowledge and they can go back and compare players to, um, you know, guys that they've scouted 20 years. Hey, this guy reminds me of so-and-so and so-and-so. I don't ha quite have that library of evaluations in my head that some of these guys do. And so it's something I'm still getting better at. That was Brian Cleary, former head baseball coach at the University of Cincinnati and current scout for the Washington Nationals organization. You can hear more from Cleary in episode four of the Irish Baseball podcast, which you can also find at irishbaseball.org. I'm Rick Becker, and I'm going to turn things over to my colleague Jim Ward, who will go in-depth into a great audio clip. Take it away, Jim. Thanks, Rick. In a moment, we're going to hear a clip from Tim Ryan. Tim is a retired auto executive from Birmingham, Michigan, and he's been working with the Irish American Baseball Society on a genealogical project researching the Irish heritages of many baseball greats. His research on Wade Boggs actually gained the Irish American Baseball Society a retweet from the Hall of Famer himself. He has researched Wade Boggs, Nolan Ryan, Derek Jeter, George Brett, and many others. 
You can hear him talk about this project in episode 10 of the Irish Baseball Podcast, which can be found at irishbaseball.org. In this cut, Tim talks about how he developed his love of baseball as a kid and going to Tiger Stadium. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the, re- the reason it started was because of Tiger Stadium. You know, walking into Tiger Stadium, as a lot of people say, it's a magical type thing. It was for me as a 10-year-old kid who probably was the first time I went there. Uh, the problem is my age, when I was 10, the Tigers were terrible. This was the mid-70s. Um, but one of the players that really got it going for me was Ron LaFleur. And Ron LaFleur was this great story. He came out of prison. He, he had a tryout in prison. And Billy Martin was the t- Tiger manager in the early 70s, and he got him out of prison. And this guy was a wonder guy. He stole all these bases. He hit for average. He was really he really was started the rebirth for the Tigers. But then in the late 70s, that whole crew came up together. Jack Morris, Kirk Gibson, Dan Petrie, Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, Lance Parrish. And from then on, I was hooked. I mean, they were a great team. And they mimicked a lot of what has been successful in Detroit and other sports. Not a lot of superstars, but a lot of great role players. And put together, they're a great team. The bad boys from the Pistons, the 2004-2005 Pistons team was the same way. No superstar. Uh, football, you can't talk much about Detroit. It hasn't been that good very long. <laughs> but, you know, hockey has always been, you know, they've always had great role players too, the Red Wings. But that that team in the 80s was uh, a lot of fun to watch. That was Tim Carr talking about his love of baseball as a kid and going to Tiger Stadium and getting those early days of influence for the love of the game that we all love so much. And Tim and I kind of do share a lot in common in that in those uh, mid-70s uh, when, I, I mean, I'm, I grew up in, it was born in 66, and so I was a child of the, the early uh, mid to late 70s. Uh, and as a kid, you know, Fenway Park and the Red Sox were my team here in New England, just like the Tigers were the, the thing for kids in Detroit and in Michigan, uh, like where Tim was from. And it was the same thing. You walked in as a youngster, you're in awe of the smell of the grass, the 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 history that was Tiger Stadium or Fenway Park or uh, the old Yankee Stadium, uh, Wrigley Field. These are iconic ballparks. Uh, fortunately, we're very lucky to still have Wrigley and Fenway still going. Uh, for how long, we don't know. But, uh, of course, Tiger Stadium is long gone. Uh, Yankee Stadium is gone. Uh, the original uh, baseball stadium there in Baltimore, that's gone. Uh, Memorial Stadium. Uh, but they have given way to new stadiums that have cherished what it was like in the old stadiums. But the old stadiums had culture. And like Tim was talking about, for me and him, our teams weren't very good in the 70s, and it was one guy that, you know, uh, triggered it for us. For him, it was Ron LaFleur, who was a very interesting cat in his own right. Uh, he, you know, being incarcerated, uh, but, you know, his story was actually really uh, an amazing story, and it actually became uh, a movie uh, in 1978 starring LeVar Burton as Ron LaFleur. It's called One in a Million, the Ron LaFleur story. And it talks about how he, he was founded in prison. And uh, it was amazing the, the way that story went. It actually aired on September 26, 1978. And then in Europe, they released it 
in a theatrical form. LeVar Burton was in it, and actually uh, guys that uh, actually played in the movie that uh, played themselves, of course, was Billy Martin who played himself. Uh, there was many others uh, uh, that played themselves. Some of the uh, former Tigers got to play themselves as well. Uh, Norm Cash, Bill Freehan, Al Kaline, Jim Northrup, they all played themselves in this movie, and uh, it, it talks about you know how he was discovered, and, that, and the actual... Uh, story was that he was incarcerated in April 1970 and he first organized a baseball league uh, that he played in was in for inmates and uh, Jimmy Carella who was a fellow inmate who was in prison for extortion convinced his longtime friend Jimmy uh, Bootsikaris who co-owned the Detroit bar frequently supported by Detroit sports celebrities to speak to a good friend who was Billy Martin then managing the Tigers and asked him to come observe LaFleur so Billy went and visited uh, Jackson State Prison in 1973 on May 23rd, and then it was Martin that did help LaFleur get permission for a day parole for a tryout at Tiger Stadium in June, and it was that July in 1973 that he was signed to a contract which met his conditions of his parole. He would then get assigned to the Clinton Pirates in the Class A Midwest League, and it was then managed by none other than Jim Leland, and in that year, LaFleur hit 277. Well, all this going on in the 70s, he then played for Lakeland in the Tigers organization in Class A Florida League, hit 331 there, stole 45 bases in 102 games, got promoted to AAA to the Evansville Triplets, and then it wasn't that long before that LaFleur would be up in 1974, splitting time with Mickey Stanley in center field. Now, at this time, the Tigers were starting to come along. You had Mark Fidrich there, and it was just then that in the minor leagues uh, at that point in time, you had Jack Morris, Lance Parrish, Alan Trammell, and Lou Whitaker already and aching to come up, and they would make their debuts in 1977, right at the tail end of LaFleur's time with the Tigers, and then uh, they would be the last group that Ralph Houck would have, and before you know it, it would be the Sparky Anderson era, and then the beginning of the great run of the Tigers then took place, and uh, it was just a real remarkable story, and uh, the fact that a guy like Ron LaFleur and just the sight of a guy like Billy Martin to find this guy and uh, find that talent and give him an opportunity. Now, he would run into issues with the law later on in life. It was Ron LaFleur and Billy Martin that really triggered this whole thing uh, for the Tigers, and it was a great memory that uh, Tim uh, shared with us. And, you know, it was like for us, me, and, and with the Red Sox, you know, guys like Freddie Lynn and Jim Rice coming up and Dwight Evans, you know, in the mid-'70s and 74, 75, right through 78, that's what triggered it for the Red Sox, although it took a little while longer to get success. But it, it was the, all that that triggered that big run in 1978 and that big uh, extra game against the Yankees at Fenway Park, which unfortunately didn't go our way. But later on, we got redemption uh, in our run uh, to the World Series. Another great clip and another great story for Tim Carr, and we appreciate sharing it with you today on the Irish Baseball Podcast. If you want to learn more about the work that Tim is doing with the Irish American Baseball Society on our genealogical project, head on over to irishbaseball.org, where you can also find links to all of our episodes, including episode 10, where we talk more about that 
uh, genealogical project, as well as history on some of the other great men of Irish heritage that have played in the major leagues. You can find it all at irishbaseball.org. I'm Jim Ward. Thanks for tuning in. Let's send you back to Rick Becker here on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thank you for that, Jim. I'm Rick Becker, and the Irish Baseball Podcast is a product of the Irish American Baseball Society, and our founder, John Fitzgerald, is also the founder of the Baseball United Foundation. This year, the Baseball United Foundation has been very active in teaching baseball in Northern Ireland. For more details, visit BaseballUnitedFoundation.org. Here is John Fitzgerald with a look at some Irish American baseball history. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, the founder of the Irish American Baseball Society. And today I'd like to introduce you to an Irish baseball legend named Pud Galvin. James Francis Pud Galvin was born on Christmas Day in 1855. He grew up in a poor section of St. Louis known as the Kerry Patch, an area that was named after the home county of most of its Irish residents. Although Galvin's parents, Martin and Bridget, came from Clare and Mayo. Galvin was a short man, standing only 5 feet 8 inches tall. His hands were not big enough for him to master a curveball, but he made up for his lack of size with strength and dedication to his craft. It wasn't long before James Francis Galvin had earned the nickname Pud because of his ability to turn batters into pudding. While pitching for the St. Louis Red Stockings in 1876, Galvin threw the first perfect game in the history of organized baseball. In fact, the term perfect game had never been used before and it wasn't used to describe Galvin's performance. What's even more impressive is that Galvin had already thrown a no-hitter earlier that same day. In his first Major League season, Pud Galvin posted a 37-27 record with a 2.28 ERA in 593 innings pitched. On August 20th, 1880, Galvin became the first pitcher to throw a no-hitter on the road. In 1883, Galvin started 75 games and completed 72 of them while maintaining an ERA of 2.72. Oh, he also won 46 games that year. On August 20th, 1880, Galvin became the first pitcher to throw a no-hitter on the road. In 1883, Galvin started 75 games, completing 72 of them, while maintaining a 2.72 ERA. He also won 46 games that year. Galvin was considered the best fielding pitcher of his generation. His pickoff move was the stuff of legend. He once got out of a bases-loaded jam by picking off the runner at first, followed by the runner at third, and finally picking off the runner at second base. Pud Galvin also claimed to have dabbled with performance-enhancing drugs, specifically a form of monkey testosterone. Pud Galvin became baseball's first 300-game winner in 1888. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1965. For more information on Pud Galvin and other Irish baseball legends, visit the Irish American Baseball Society at irishbaseball.org. This has been episode 12 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. My colleague Jim Ward went very in-depth on an audio clip from Tim Carr. Get more information on Tim's genealogical research on the Irish heritage of many baseball legends at irishbaseball.org. For Jim Ward, Tim Carr, John Fitzgerald, and my guest, Washington Nationals scout Brian Cleary. I'm Rick Becker on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.